Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Just one interview today with the estimable Roxanne Dunbar-Artiz, whose book Loaded, A Disarming History of the Second Amendment, was published earlier this year by City Lights Books. We'll discuss guns, white nationalism, and other engaging and related topics during our 47-minute conversation. Roxanne Dunbar-Artiz was born in Texas and grew up in Oklahoma. She's lived in San Francisco more or less continuously since the early 1960s. Roxanne was very active in the movements of the 60s, about which she's written extensively, including some in this book, Loaded. Her work consists mainly of memoirs and histories. Her previous work, An Indigenous People's History of the United States, was published by Beacon in 2014. Her memoirs include Outlaw Woman, published by City Lights in 2002, and Red Dirt, Growing Up Oki, first published by Verso in 1997. She's a professor emerita of ethnic studies at Cal State Hayward. Loaded is a short book, but an extremely useful one for anyone trying to understand the American obsession with guns. Like most things, history can do a lot of the work of explanation. Guns were central to stealing Indian lands and enforcing slavery, not just by the army, but also by private citizens. These concerns live on both in imagination and in modified form in practice today. Here's Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. You open uh, the book with uh, an anecdote of, from your own past uh, when you were involved with this radical group in New Orleans in the 70s, and uh, you guys were um, getting harassed by the cops and the Klan, and you decided okay. to arm up. Uh, and you described briefly having a, like a two-year love affair with guns. Right. What was it about guns that uh, you found so almost erotically charged? Yes. Well, I call that chapter Gun Love, because I'm convinced that people, that you know, the average owner of guns owned eight eight weapons, that it's very hard just to buy one weapon because you get attached to it. It's a, it's a unique object. There's nothing else that's like having a cannon in your hand. You're empowered. They're beautiful objects, too. I tell people not to look at them, you know. <laughs> just, <laughs> just don't look in the window when you Dangerous. <laughs> a gun store because they're magnetic. They're like babies. They they want to be coddled, taken care of. They attract you. And once you have one in your hands, and you have to, especially being in New Orleans, uh, where it's so wet and everything rusts, we're constantly cleaning and oiling and, you know, handling these guns. And all of our meetings turn into a circle of gun cleaning while we talk, usually about the guns. They demand the total attention. So I do think it's a it's it's a unique object. NRA people like to say, well, you can kill kill someone with anything—a chair, or, you know, or uh, your fist, or whatever. So it's what's so special about a gun? Well, nothing else in this world is made for one purpose only—that you won't survive is a, is a firearm. So it is unique, and only a third of the population own guns at all. They're, they're 300 million, and only a third of the population, that's a lot of people, 100 million people, do own guns. And they own multiple guns, so the average <laughs> there's is a eight. lot of guns eight. out there, yeah. So there are those people who own only one gun, you know, and they're probably in a position that they maybe feel they need. I'm thinking a scenario where if I were in a wheelchair living alone and in an edgy district or something, I wouldn't mind having a shotgun beside me with bird seed. You know, you have to kill the intruder. You know, you just if you blast them with a bird seed, you can't miss with a shotgun. That's all you really need for home self defense. And it's but not people really like stocking up on them. Yeah, and it, well, it's not a sexy gun either. You know, you don't yeah. really get attached to a shotgun. You know, that's the first thing we got. We, we didn't know a shotgun. Then we decided, well, maybe we need to have pistols. You know, <laughs> then maybe we need some <laughs> semi-automatic <laughs> military weapons. <laughs> then we need a canister of cheap ammunition, army surplus, and you just go to those gun shows, and it becomes a you know in itself a whole culture that for us was very disgusting because of the, um, you know, the Nazi symbols and the swastikas and the Confederate flags and everything. Which is inseparable for that whole gun show culture, It, right? it is. I mean, the Confederate yeah. flags and Nazi symbols. It's is, absolutely in, integral to it. Which yeah. is, but now, 
want to get back to that point, but then you fell out of love with the guns. You, do you think I got, they, they I got they were deprogrammed <laughs> I, by my my mentor Elizabeth Martinez, Petita Martinez. I don't know if you know. She was actually the secretary of SNCC in New York, the fundraiser uh-huh. for SNCC, and she quit her UN very professional job to to work with SNCC for little pay at all. Then she went to New Mexico and worked with the uh, Hispano land grants. And so I was introduced to her in 1969. So I went through there, two of us. We had driven out to California. We were underground. You know, we were under false papers and all. But I went to visit her in a very remote cabin that uh, she was staying in up in the, in the uh, mountains in, in New Mexico. It, it Probably something in me, you know, wanted to be talked out of it because, it, but it wasn't easy for her. She's, she's literally spent, she and her partner, Reese Lloyd, they took turns berating me all night long. I mean, yelling at me, you know, what about the working class? What, what does this have to do with it? How does it benefit? And on and on and on. I said, well, you have a you have a shotgun there, you know. Say, oh, they said, D- give me a break, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you, you have a stockpile of weapons, don't you? You know. <laughs> and I trusted them completely. They would never ever report me, or they were worried about me for one thing. The guns demand them to be used, you know. That's the other thing. So we were finding things to do with the guns. And I go more into detail in um, the memoir, Outlaw Woman. I have a whole chapter called Gun and Guns and Roses that um, I go into more details about how we got into it. And then, you know, it, it kind of got out ahead. Was, supposedly, we were creating safe houses with guns for fugitive panthers. You know, we had a purpose in doing it. I don't tell that in this book because I, you know, it's too much information for the kind of book it is. I just wanted to, to put it out there that I've gone through this yes. and I know what it feels like. The Nazi flags, the Confederate flags, that are so much a part of the the gun show culture. It's a real tip off. People say, "Why is America so obsessed with guns?" You know, they scratch their heads. It seems yeah. like they just come up with all these irrational explanations. It's like you know, just a fixation. It's a crazy psychology. It's you know, this culture itself that has some kind of autonomous power over people. But those flags and symbols are really a clue to the roots of this this obsession, right? I mean, this is much of your book is talking about the role of the gun in American history and it's the creation of this white settler culture, right? What the Second Amendment's about, the book is really a history of the Second Amendment. And people, you know, have these really weird arguments, you know, about whether it means a militia like the National Guard, and they apparently haven't read the Constitution, which provides for the National Guard. They call them state militias. And then they, you know, the name changed to National Guard. They didn't need it in the Bill of Rights to establish the National Guard. Why would you do that and then say every person has a, you know, right to bear arms? And it makes no sense unless you look at the history, which even leftists sometimes seem to not want to do. My friend Dan Lazar wrote a piece for Harper's 20 years ago now, uh-huh. um, but the, the title was Your Constitution is Killing You, and he's, you know, he hates the Constitution, he thinks it's an yes. antique 18th century document, <laughs> slave owners, plutocrats dream. <laughs> His argument in this article was that, yes, the Second Amendment is what the NRA says, to exactly. protect the private right, not not it, the reading that all the liberals want It is exactly that. The NRA, I mean, they are right they know exactly what that's about, is about killing Indians, taking lands, and slave patrols. They know that. It is white nationalism. You can match it just with statistics. There's no way to really prove it, but you you get these figures like, okay, 70% of gun owners are white men, and half of those white men who own multiple guns are either in the military or have been in the military. So there's a connection with militarization, of course. You know, that's an important connection that's left out. And then how many active members, hardcore, of the NRA are there? And there are, there are probably only about five million. Five million well-organized people with a passion is a strong force. And, and heavily armed. Yeah. And trained, you know, so usually in the military or self-trade, then the military ones train the other ones. 
there is an armed militias out there. And Lewis Beam, you know, wrote the strategy back in, well, in the early 80s. It really came to circulate in anarchist circles in the 90s. And it's a leaderless revolution where everyone agrees, you know, you don't have to have organizations or anyone. There's a general agreement that, you know, black people are taking over and immigrants are taking over and the white race is going to um, uh, disappear and that they they see it as defensive and that they really do control the NRA now. That only started in 1977. And that's a kind yeah, it, it was just a sporting organization and then it, it, was, it acquired yeah, a serious political agenda. It was a, you know, it was kind of a stupid organization it is you know hunting because i had this whole thing on you know the myth of hunting too yeah. and it's really the not about, Norman Mallard about the hunter personality that was yeah, killing the, the hunter yeah, per- yeah exactly that you know, Ma- norman mailer yeah 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 because yeah, yeah. you think the hunter is like you know, <laughs> he really had it down it's not for me he? but you know you think okay it's it's it's, it's an honorable pursuit but like that was a really dark portrait of the psychology of the hunter yeah, yeah, it it really but was. But that let's let's go back to the the, the way um, the um, was it that quote from Alan Simpson? No guns, no West, right? Yeah. What how, how, what what happened? Like it was not just the U.S. Army killing right. natives and stealing their land. It was a privatized operation, right? Yeah, and it was um, it was a lot more refined uh, once the United States really refined it, but um, under British colonial, settler colonialism in Canada, United States, New Zealand, Australia, very similar to take the land. It's the motivation of the settlers. Why they come is for land. They're promised land. They don't um, want to be European peasants. They, they well, they have, they I have think, myth of personally, I think there's the memory, a kind of collective memory of peasantry, of land. And, of course, land means wealth. It means royalty. You know, suddenly you become a landlord when you were on the streets right. of, of London, you know, maybe homeless or begging. You can suddenly become a lord. But a then there's the messy detail that the people are already living there. Yeah. The U.S. history thing is it was uh, terra nullius. There just weren't any people, just, you know, scattered tribes and all. So, so it was just, land was just for the taking. And, of course, that belies the fact that every single moment from the first landing, they were at war, you know, in genocidal wars against the Indians. But they were, settlers would start these. The army was basically for a backup after the United States was formed uh, and the U.S. Army was formed and the Marines, the settlers would provoke, and sometimes it was under the British, they would um, incite wars by taking land. And then after a while, powerful Native confederations formed that didn't allow it, you know, would wipe out these settlers. And so the British ended up, you know, making that proclamation line at the Appalachian Allegheny Mountains. So that was really what independence was about, the right to take land. It says that they're doing this, they're letting the savages on our frontiers and protecting them. That's what the Declaration of Independence is. Well, and the great injustice of the Stamp Act was that they were using the revenue to finance... To, to finance the soldiers guarding... Preventing them from stealing more land, right? right. <laughs> exactly. So like this whole, you know, this whole uh, animating passion of so much of the American right. Yeah. The anti-tax passion. Absolutely, yeah. It's usually presented, you know, this unjust government oppressing them, but in yeah. fact they were being denied the right to steal land. Yeah, and post-World War II, this all became the right to, when capitalism really had to adjust itself, I think, you know, to uh, prevent a revolution that may have been, you know, possibly occurring, certainly in other places, but having a plot of land with a house, you know, this investment, that's why I think the 2008 housing crash was traumatic for those in power. And well, yeah, home ownership is such a home ownership of is related to that taking right? land. You know, your yeah. right to take land, and of course that had been expanded to you know all of these people who couldn't afford, like me. I couldn't afford housing, but I could have gotten a mortgage and bought a house easily. I'm speaking with Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz, author of *Loaded: A Disarming History of the Second Amendment* from City Lights Books.
Yeah. But then you know. the right mythology that what caused the crash was the Community Reinvestment Act. Exactly. You know, poor black people were Poor black people were targeted. And poor Chicanos, poor working people who who could make, you know, they didn't have any down payment, first 10 years, very low interest, cheaper than renting even. And then the whole thing falls apart and their and their homes have no value. It was it's still traumatic, you know. It's still, uh, you know, a shaky situation. And then the multiplication of homeless people, or just close to homeless, you know, people barely making it. So I think that you know that uh, trajectory of history. That if we on the left could just, you know, really come to grips with that history, I think we'd come up with more interesting strategies <laughs> for changing no, then, it. In addition to the land theft, uh, the the roots of, historical roots of our gun up obsession, um, uh, our slave patrol. Yes, exactly. And that was also They're a privatized operation, a lot of it. It was federalized, too, with the Fugitive yeah. Slave Act that every single citizen was required to check out any black person that was randomly around, you know, whether or not they needed to be returned to their owners. So it made it a actually a federal law that you had to. It was, and so slave patrols were brought to the colonies by the Barbados slave owners who relocated to um, uh, and established the colony of South Carolina. You know, everything was called Virginia at first. Even New England was Virginia, and it's just Virginia, and then Massachusetts. So everything else was carved out of these um, these first colonies. So they carved it out of part of what was called Virginia and South Carolina, and they were hardcore. That slave regime in um, uh, in the Caribbean was so um, industrialized so early. It was what the King Cotton Kingdom was later in the United States, making those black bodies into machines, you know, until they dropped dead. And so to do that, to totally repress a population, they had these these slave, brutal slave patrols, had laws, uh, requirements, and these were British administrators, that every white citizen, you know, had to serve in slave patrols. But the Spanish earlier on had, you know, made genocide and either driven the native people out of Barbados. So there weren't any natives to fight. So their formation of slave patrols was based purely on, you know, slave patrols. They didn't move to, you know, found South Carolina until the 1670s. So you had, you know, 70 years, basically, of these two colonies up here that were just using these malicious to kill Indians. And they kind of brought their slave patrols with them, but the Virginians then looked and said, well, that, you know, that's pretty cool. We hadn't thought of that. So they started requiring, carving out of these already existing militias to fight Indians and take their land. They carved out slave patrols. And the militias kind of resisted uh, in Virginia. They thought it was below them, you know, Many of them didn't own the slaves themselves, and they wanted land. They wanted Indian land, you know. They ended up requiring service in slave patrols, and that didn't work so well either, so they started paying them. So, you know, the slave patrol got really institutionalized in the colonies, you know, in the 1700s, early 1700s, late 1600s. Ancestors of the modern police force. Absolutely. You can kind of draw a picture of it with a civil war where you had absolutely operative slave patrols throughout the South in every nook and corner, especially in the Cotton Kingdom. And they rode horses, you know, they ran down any fugitive with, you know, horses. As Walter Johnson has descriptions of these slave patrols in his River of Dark Dreams that are just vivid and horrible. And they also used um, food as a withdrawing food and rewarding with food for slaves. So almost all the slaves were on the edge of starvation all the time. You know, that myth that, well, they wanted to keep them healthy and well because, you know, they wanted them to work hard. Their capital equipment, they spent a lot of money on them, right? But the thing is that that the food was being used as, you know, uh, starvation to work more, and then they would get food if, if 
if something happened, they fell or got ill or whatever, no food. So that was a cotton kingdom. It's really more like the, you know, the, the slavery in the Caribbean uh, than the earlier slavery, which was uh, not gentle at all, but it was less industrialized. And the Civil War, the slave patrols were in, you know, full operation during the Civil War. They continued trying their best to contain slaves escaping and joining the Union Army or forming their own militias and fighting the Confederacy. So often you're left with um, women and children, slaves. and So the slave patrols were in full function all during the Civil War, but with defeat and occupation, military occupation, they were outlawed. The beginning of the redistribution of land, you know, and the elections, and that all those details are really important. But what's what's striking is that within six months of the end of the Civil War, suddenly the Ku Klux Klan appeared in every nook and corner of the former Confederate states. They were the slave patrols. They just put hoods on. And then, interestingly, when Reconstruction was, you know, withdrawn and Jim Crow set in, they took the hoods off and there was no Klan. They were the police and the sheriff. I mean, it's so clear that that's the, it's the only explanation for shooting random black men, young black men, in the back for doing nothing, you know, or in the car. It's kind of built into the psyche. And they don't know why they did it. Sometimes they say, oh, I don't know exactly why I, my gun went off. You know, it's almost like they have no control. When they see a lone black man, it's very rarely in groups. Say a gang of black men, they, you know, they kind of go away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the police can be brave when they're dealing with one unarmed person. One unarmed <laughs> person <laughs> shooting them in the back. But so I, I, I really tried to get Alicia Garza, Black Lives Matter, I said, you've got to talk about this, you know, when you talk about the police and, and really make that clear that this is slave patrols. I don't know, there's a kind of resistance to... Um, well, it sounds wacky and conspiratorial. I think it does. It, it. it does, but it's so, it's so historically genealogical but that it seems... Americans, you know, don't like history anyway. <laughs> but you know one of the they never did have enough troops uh, in the Confederate States to really enforce uh, reconstruction but they started you know there's a relationship between um, to me you know in the sort of Second Amendment history that one reason reconstruction failed which I have never seen in any by Eric Foner or any other book is because they took out five of the six uh, divisions who were occupying the South to fight the Apaches, to follow Geronimo and fight the Apaches and the Comanches in the Southwest. And the Klan was so, it's like a mystery. How did they pop up everywhere all at once? And one general said, you would have to have twice as many divisions of the U.S. Army as we even have to control the Klan in these states. That's how pervasive it was within a few years, you know. And so, you know, when people look at the present gun culture and see these Confederate flags, it seems like a lot of people just sort of scratch their heads and like, what's going on here? I know. Like, what yeah. is the persistence of this myth? But, you know, if you tell this history, it makes a lot more sense. Yeah. And the attachment to it, you know, that uh, continues, it's not... And it was revived. You know, I also tell this, this, this story of the revival of white nationalism with the civil rights movement and the Brown versus Board of Education desegregation. This was like a bombshell, you know, to the white nationalists. I mean, think about it. The Senate was almost totally controlled by the Southern, you know, the bull weevils, as Jesse Jackson <laughs> called them. I mean, they controlled uh, the Senate completely. And, of course, the, most of the House of Representatives even, there was such a, a total, what I call just a lockdown white republic, as it, let's say 1940. And then comes soldiers coming back, black men ha having self-confidence and fighting back, you know, and uh, all these kind of, like, I don't know if you saw um, Mudbound, but I think that was very good 
dramatization. This uh, African-American woman made this. Uh, it's a really, really good. It's about a black soldier, you know, coming back to his hometown and the usual racism. And it uh, doesn't end well. <laughs> the bombshell of desegregation set off this new white nationalism. Which is also inseparable from the rise of modern libertarianism. Like you know, Nancy McLean writes about in her book that the, yes, the resistance absolutely. to Brown versus Board of Education. Yeah, we, we've been in touch. You know, my book came out about the same time hers did, so I didn't have hers to use, and she, she didn't have mine, but we have some, you know, kind of parallel yeah. things there. But you know, the, the centrality of um, this, this fear of the loss of white control yeah. to both this, you know, the sort of populist version, the gun movement, but then, you know, the, uh, this libertarian intellectual movement that yeah. financed by the Kochs and all these folks. It's all, it's all of a piece. With and this. John Birch Society was founded. Uh, yeah, Koch Fred was Koch one, of one of the founding members. Yeah. And that was their whole thing, you know, this libertarian, but it was completely a white nationalist organization, blatantly. It formed two years after the Brown versus Board of Education. 56 or something? Yeah. Like that, yeah. Their animating mythology is that their power is being taken from them. Yeah, they're being expropriated by you know feminists, and now it's the queers that are taking over, and it's like this this they're in this constant state of siege mentality. And they believe it. And they believe it. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's but, just the thing. You know, they're taking opium over I, it. I guess the reality <laughs> of it is that any kind of threat to that kind of white patriarchal control is seen as you know life-threatening to these characters. Right. And, you know, certainly there have been gains by feminists. There have been gains by the civil rights movement. Yeah. And, you know, in some sense, they're right that they're losing some degree of preeminence, and they want to do anything they can, whether it's through the state or through their private guns, to uh, prevent that, right? Yeah, it's um, it's really tricky business. Again, you know, for the left, how we view this, I've heard for years people say, of course, in California, it's a reality. The, the state is 50%. Mexican as it once was 100%. It's now <laughs> 50% Mexican. And it makes a difference, you know. I mean, it's much, our legislature is just amazing. I mean, California used to be a hardcore white Republican state, even though. Um, even Orange County has gone over to the dark even side. Even Orange <laughs> County has become blue. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, where John Bircher's flourished. I hear people argue, and it, it's kind of a, I don't know, it seems like an excuse for not doing anything. Oh, well, demographics will change everything. As if really believing that people of color are not susceptible to Americanism. And if we look at all those books, like Noelic Natives, um, How the Irish Became White, and there's one, How Jewish People, Jewish Folk Became White, really, really good books. One, How Italians Became White. And they go through that process, and it's really how they become settlers, how they become white settlers. And the component of what they have to do is hate black people. <laughs> you yeah. know, they have to embrace... Um, it's like a hazing anti- ritual for becoming a real American. Exactly, to become an American. If the white people actually do disappear, as a, which is really not very probable, I mean, you know, no one's going to kill them off... Even if, if whiteness, that people with, you know, our skin color no longer exists, that doesn't mean the Americanism, which embodies, first of all, anti-black racism, but also the right to have taken the land. No, you know, no um, reconciliation with the past, but keeping up this empire. Obama kept up we the empire. Uh... We haven't discussed this aspect of the gun culture, but it's you know, decades and decades of imperial war. Exactly. Have decades people, from day you know, one yeah, of, of the United States. Yeah. Generation after generation has gone to acquire other people's land, yeah. not, not just you know, on this continent, but uh, no, everywhere. They, I consider the annexation, invasion, annexation of Mexico, uh, it should be considered a, an overseas war, you know, because they actually entered through Veracruz. I mean, it was, you know, it was... But they always date that to 1898. But you can say this scenario, once they, once you have the 1890 Wounded Knee Massacre as a kind of symbolic thing, they jump off into the Pacific and, and Caribbean and start, you know, overseas uh, saltwater, as they call it, saltwater imperialism. 
Yeah, without taking colonies, people, well, they had plenty of colonies. There's, of course, there's Guam and Puerto Rico and Philippines for 50 years and Hawaii. And, but that's not their point. You know, that's not the real point uh, of it. Those are just like fueling stations, you know, sort of strategic for economic control of uh, trade and so forth. But the Barbary Wars were about trade, you know, free trade because the Berbers were requiring um, fees to cross their waters, their territorial waters in Tripoli, and um, fought back successfully in the first war. And then they went back, the Marines went back. But the Marines were engaged, you know, also in the Mexican War. This is a book I'm writing now on the, on the Mexican War and the border, that uh, the Marines were the main element in the occupation of Mexico City. Descriptions of it are almost like you read about search and destroy uh, and, and clearing lands like in Vietnam, you know, from that march from Veracruz, occupying Veracruz, and then the march to Mexico City. That ends the first part of my interview with Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, author of Loaded, A Disarming History of the Second Amendment from City Lights Books. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. That was some of the first movement of Beethoven's Piano Trio No. 1, Opus 1, performed by Daniel Barenboim, Jacqueline Dupre, and Pincus Zuckerman. And now part two of my interview with Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, author of Loaded, A Disarming History of the Second Amendment from City Lights Books. And you see in, in Trump and the people around him, too, a lot of these anxieties really come to the fore. The trade thing about China, the, the worry yeah. about China becoming a rising power. Yes. And there's something that, you know, Trump obviously has severe psychological issues around China, but then also people coming up through Mexico and this, this fear of yeah. like being penetrated by these dark forces. Yeah, it's the just, yellow peril. Yeah, it's the yellow peril and, and, and the, the brown menace. The brown menace. And he just like fulminates in public. But these are like deep-seated American anxieties. One of the things about Trump that's so scandalous is that he um, says out loud. He says everything out loud. That are supposed to be kept under wraps that's, or euphemized. That's the only thing I like about whistled. it. Yeah, like, there's something very useful about that. <laughs> yes. It could be if we really um, took it, you know. But this on common the, reaction to that, he's not who we are. Yeah. He is who we are. It is Magnified and reflected are. back at us. Why does he have so much support? They keep saying 60% people disapprove of him. That means that 40% of the people approve of him. That's a critical mass. What if we had 40% of the people approving of socialism? I'd be happy with 5%. <laughs> <laughs> well, 1%. <laughs> uh, I think we're pushing 5%. I mean, five act like 40% is nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just because it's, you know, not like other, you know, popularity contests. But that's a hardcore base. I mean, who could be for him these days except white nationalists? Well, yeah, that's the emotional root of it. I mean, I think you do have these you know, suburban Republicans who just like the tax cuts and overlook... But the, I think they're the also white. They're they're kind of the passive, you know. Right. Those people. They're willing are to put scum, up with that. But you know, as long as they can get their taxes. You codes. see this with these tech people in the Bay Area. You know, I mean, there are South Asians and others who get started there, but they're mainly white guys. They are uh, they're heartless creatures, but they slip up and they're caught every now and then. You know, it's making so misogynist culture. Too. The misogynist is absolutely. I mean that. That's a you know also with the gun culture this uh, the misogyny involved in uh, um, so-called domestic violence 
the the feds and you know the police forces don't even count domestic let's say a man kills his wife and his three children and the grandmother and the aunt you know these things that happen inside a home that's not considered a mass shooting it's considered domestic violence that makes women so vulnerable so it's one of the things i wish i'd written more about it's very clear that deaths from domestic violence have risen sharply with the increase in gun proliferation in the last 50 years you know as Corey robin writes uh, in his book that uh, one of the uh, the popular the roots of popular appeal for the right is men who feel threatened in their house yeah that the, the authority the patriarch is being undermined and this is their link to uh, you know organized right-wing politics is this sense that they're no longer the king of their castle. Yeah. And you know this domestic violence is the extreme reaction to that. It it is and it's be, it, when there's a gun available it's death. Whereas before, you know, you can take a lot of battering, smash your face in, disfigure you completely and break bow every bone in your body and you can survive if you get away from the uh, abuser. But if there's a gun available and they're in that madness state, it's final, you know. You quote some from Mark Ames, uh, Mark Ames. You know how much I I hated him when he first wrote that thing. (laughs) He actually gave, I didn't know until I read Mark Ames about the right wing taking over NRA in 1977. But the Operation Wetback article. Well, that that Harlan Carter, but his organization is called the Second Amendment Foundation. That's when the Second Amendment was actually fetishized. It never was before with the NRA. But in that piece, Ames also argues that uh, even going back to the New Deal, like people saw the gun as their defense against a collectivizing state. And it was like the way of having your there's no such thing, like Thatcher said, there's no such thing as society. There's only individuals and their families. They wanted the individual and the family to be the organizing principle of society and not have the New Deal and socialists and you know, with their government programs right. and all that. So that, that, you know, the connection of that view of the world, we're just all competitive individuals and constant individual struggle with sovereignty, each other. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's very much a part of, of that Absolutely. culture. And then, of course, you know, having a black president freak these people out. It really did more than I expected. I actually, I didn't think Obama was radical. And it, I mean, he had Samantha Powers, you know, as his main advisor on foreign policy. And that told me a lot about we're going to continue to have wars of humanitarian intervention with Samantha there. So I didn't have much faith in him when he was a senator. But on the other hand, I felt really gleeful that um, a black man who wasn't a Clarence Thomas, you know, reactionary, actually got elected by the majority of the population. For that alone, it seemed worth it. Even I, I mean, I should have, because I'm from Oklahoma, I <laughs> should have. My living in San Francisco, I lose my instincts of, uh-oh, this is, <laughs> this is. Well, I did for one moment. I remember when he uh, appointed Rahm Emanuel, his chief of staff. Rahm Emanuel is a dual citizen. You know, he's an Israeli citizen. Oh, right. Anyway, you know, the Turner Diaries has that scenario is the Jews will put a black person in power as a front. Well, the resurgence of anti-Semitism in the last few years has been really stunning. Well, it's so tied together yeah. because of Christian identity is the hardcore of it, but Turner Diaries is, is the Bible of all of them, whether it's the Klan people. Tim they, McVeigh they, had it in his car when he got busted. McVeigh had it. It is their Bible. Have you ever read this? No, thing? I never have read it. Well, it's practically unreadable. It's so poorly written, but it need, everyone needs to read it because I lay it out in, in there, you know, that uh, here's the scenario. It's not that much different from 19th century British. Um, uh, they had this thing about their scientists said when evolution, when Darwin's evolution came out, they conceded that the dark people of the world, and they included the Irish in it, that was the thing that's interesting, uh, that these inferior people in the world, these savages, they came from the mud. But the white people was cre- were created by God. And so it's apes and angels is the theory, the way it goes. So that's basically Christian identity, is black people come from the mud, and white people created by God, and Jews are Satan. So, Treacherous, devious, And awful. Jews want to take over, so they use the mud people who can bring sympathy 
as their front for taking power, but it's really Jews behind the scenes. That's the whole Soros thing. That is oh, yeah. completely the Soros thing. Jew-hating is so ingrained in white nationalism. The same people, these evangelicals, right-wing evangelicals, that love Israel, the Jews are supposed to come back to Israel in order for, you know, the Jews... For the rapture to arrive. Yeah. Yeah. So it's no great love for Jews. It's, you know, it's a part of their... But I think they also see in Israel a settler state like themselves, you know, a bully state, uh, Palestinians as uh, inferior beings. And I think there is a real affect, you know, a yeah. feeling of... Uh, what well, is this the similar sense of, like, you've stolen people's land and then you feel like they're this hostile force threatening you? Yeah. Yeah, or on your borders constantly. Threatening, yeah, they, you know, it's all defensive. You're war. never safe, so yeah, you had to be fully armed. Yeah, and, and, yeah, and they the, like the it. Every Israeli war. is armed. You know. Yeah. I'm speaking with Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz, author of Loaded: A Disarming History of the Second Amendment from City Lights Books. The last minutes of an interview is always cast to this point, but what do we do about this gun culture? I mean, it's so pervasive. It touches yeah. so many parts of American history and society that. Um, it's nearly impossible to imagine doing anything about it. I know. It is why these the idea of legislation, uh, you know, the Parkland kids, much was made about them, but almost every speech they gave that I followed pretty closely, and then I saw two of them on Bill Maher's real time, they make the point very strongly before they even talk about anything else is how much they adore and support the Second Amendment. So the reason I wrote a book on the Second Amendment is I think that's the key, is to expose and make clear what the Second Amendment is really about. Because you hear Hillary Clinton, you hear Obama, and everyone said, well, yeah, the Second Amendment. You know, no one says, hey, you know, the Second Amendment should... It's a racist thing, you know. It, it's really, there needs to be, you know... Uh, well, you write about that uh, Bilal's history of guns in which he yeah. invented a past in which there were not guns. Yeah. In fact, you know, it's exactly wrong that yeah. there were tons of guns in the American Oh, wasn't 19th, that... 18th, what 19th is century. it with these people? John Weiner, he's a friend of mine. Yeah. He doesn't speak to me But anymore. people wanted to believe... I was attacked by all these, you know, leftist friends of John Weiner. I've known him for 50 years. And why is he still defending this fake book? But people want to believe it, though, right? Well, then, um, but there's also, the, you mentioned that book uh, about the gun industry. Yeah. And she blames it all on marketing. Gunning in America, yeah. That she's not going to talk about India. She's not going to talk about the West. She's not. She says these things in the introduction. She's going to talk about the real thing. It's the gun industry that's making money, you know. And it sounds almost like vulgar Marxism, you yeah. know. It's, What's, it's the economy. There's something comforting stupid. about blaming external forces yeah. rather than something that's deeply internal to American Yeah, she doesn't history. even deal much with the NRA except them being an adjunct to the gun industry. But how does she deal with all these Confederate flags and such? It just doesn't, doesn't. Well, she also says that there were no guns, you know, in the colonial era. They were awash in guns. You know? They were required to have guns. They had, Virginia and, and um, Massachusetts both had laws on the books requiring... Have, by 1637, they were requiring every single white man to have a gun and never to leave the home without it, even in church. What were they afraid of other than Indians? Well, you have to deny there were guns in order to sustain the narrative, you know. But when people bring up, and you write about this, the, uh, the Australian example, when they, the government bought up all the uh, assault exactly. weapons, and they disappeared, and the Australian murder rate and suicide rate d- d- went down, and people are like, why can't we do that here? And in some ways, Australia is a similar society, you know, white settler society. I would say it was more brutal toward the Indians. It was more brutal. It was more genocidal. Tasmania is like the only successful genocide. Total genocide. And that was the big shooting was in Tasmania that made them bad the guts. ah. It was in Tasmania. It's kind of a tourist place now. But the thing is that, yes, well, what's the difference between Australia, uh, Canada, New Zealand together and the United States? One, they're all members of the Commonwealth. 
The United States government was set up as a white republic for these purposes, and they had this completely different transition. But it doesn't mean that the British invasion and colonialism was any less harsh. But you notice they're all apologetic, they're making you know, reparations, they're doing all these things that are being demanded of them now. Whereas in the U.S. is nothing happens, you know, no apologies, nothing. Well, you know, maybe we did some bad things to the Indians, but they were doing bad things too, you know, it's too... Uh, <laughs> As Jimmy Carter said, in Vietnam, the destruction is mutual. Right? <laughs> 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 Slavery is the difference between... Well, and that, yeah, I say, now what's the difference? You know, partly it's the formation of the U.S. government and that constitution, which is absolutely drenched in white supremacy, the whole constitution. I mean, the more I got into the Second Amendment, I have, you know, I took constitutional law in law school, but um, I just, you know, it was just the regular constitutional law thing uh, many decades ago. But getting back into it and also finding this article in the Duke Law Journal, which I didn't have when I did the book, uh, it was published uh, about four years ago, but I didn't know about it until recently. It's called The Savage Constitution. I'll send you a link. It's oh, yeah. a 95-page law review article that shows practically every word of the Constitution is embedded in this white republic. It's a, the but elect- I think The electoral we, college that gave us Trump. Exactly. Well, yeah, that for sure. And also the, you know, the, the escape valve of even the banning of slavery still al- allows convict, of course, this the new Jim Crow, yeah. a convict, you know, the incarceration, because you lose your citizenship, you know, practically, yeah. you can't vote. Speaking of law review articles, I read one recently uh, about the history of the electoral college, and it's talking about... The first time that uh, the loser of a popular vote won the Electoral College was when Jefferson beat Adams. Mm-hmm. And Adams had won, he would have recognized Haiti. Yeah. Jefferson, of course, never recognized Haiti. And you know, the, world, the history of the world would have been different had the U.S. recognized Haiti. So like the, yeah. the Electoral College has this you know, racist slaver history. It takes care of With things. worldwide consequence. It does. Well, even you look at Gore. I don't think Gore would have invaded Iraq. Who would think of that? That was a whole neocon thing, you know, that had made no sense at all in response to 9-11. So that's a, a huge difference. A few million people dead and, yeah. you know, still in chaos. The Constitution is almost a status of a sacred text in American life. This is the problem, you know, so is the Second Amendment. And that's why I think if we tackle the Second Amendment and expose it and really, it will make people start thinking about the Constitution in general, that it's uh, problematic. And they think, well, what will we do if we don't have a Constitution? Well, lots of countries don't have constitutions, you know? They have laws. They make it very, very difficult to amend, though. The, the, well, the, the way that the article that created the Senate is written, the Senate, which is an abomination, yeah. can't be abolished without the unanimous consent of all the states. Yeah. So the Senate is with us forever, yeah. unless we completely shred the Constitution. Yeah, exactly. Well, and other people who have constitutions, the French, they keep rewriting them, yeah. you know, they call it the First Republic, the Second Republic, the Third Republic. Proudly, you know, it's not like a failure. <laughs> it's like an advance. But the reverence of the Constitution Bolivia across the political its... spectrum, too. Like, liberals revere the Constitution in different ways from the way conservatives yeah. revere it. But it's like you cannot... Well, that's It'd be thing. like denying the virgin birth. You know, I think, maybe this is overthinking it, but I was told when I laid it out to someone, but I really think that one of the key fail- failures of our movements in the 1960s, especially civil rights, you know, remaining revolutionary is that the reverence for the Constitution and a reinterpretation, because Brown versus Board of, Edu- Board of Education was a reinterpretation of the Constitution. So was Roe versus Wade. It wasn't originalist. It's like the NRA is right about the second, you know, about uh, what the Second Amendment means. I think the right wing is right about the Const- the originalism. And the amendments... Uh, you know, they but they do. understand its importance to maintaining this hierarchical order that we live under. Yeah, 
it's also originalism which gave us you know this now uh, majority Supreme Court of white nationalists was really a reaction to the Brown versus Board of Education. They are working away, gnawing away like little beavers the whole time, to, and they know they have to get presidents elected in order to get sit. And liberals know that too, who got because of the Supreme Court. Because so it became a fight. Like civil rights was, and a lot of lawyers became famous, you know, becoming civil rights lawyers and convincing people um, they need to go to court rather than be revolutionaries. Yes. <laughs> That was Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, author of Loaded, A Disarming History of the Second Amendment from City Lights Books. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Guns of Brooklyn by Santo Gold, now 10 years old. Till next week, bye. <laughs>